We're going to begin a brand new series today called Tethered, the Truths That Anchor Us. How many of you have your journal today? Right here? Come on, hopefully, hopefully you got it. If you haven't got it yet, we still have a few available after service. You can grab them. For those of you with the journal, you can turn to page five, and we're going to be talking about this beautiful word right here, orthodoxy. Come on, anybody excited to start this brand new series? Um, we're going to talk about some big things over the next 16 weeks, and uh, I'll, I'll dig into that with detail a little bit more in just a moment. But I want to take us to John chapter 18, verses 28 through to 38. It's going to be where we begin today. Very powerful piece of scripture. And then we're going to read one more. and It's going to hopefully frame what it is that we're talking about today. And it says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out and said to them, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And Pilate told him, you take him and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' word might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. And then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to them, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? Which is a fascinating question if you, dig in, if you dig into what's going on. Is this your own opinion or is this something that you've gathered from people? Where do you stand on this matter? I think it's a question out the gate that all of us have to wrestle with. Is your opinion about Jesus a conclusion that you came to? Is your opinion about Jesus a conclusion that somebody else had you come to? Oh, it's getting quiet in church already today. Come on. I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate asked. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the, come on, someone shout truth. Yeah. Come on, someone shout truth. Yeah. Come on, auditorium two, someone shout truth. Yeah. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, listen to this question Pilate asked. What is truth? Show of hands, how many of you would say, that's a pretty big and profound question? Four of you, let's try that again. How many of you would agree? What is truth is a pretty big and profound question, okay? This is a participation sport here at church, all right? One more section of scripture I want to take us to, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. This is Paul writing to young Timothy. Listen to what he writes. He says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. I want us all to know today that that wasn't just something that Paul wrote to Timothy, but that is the charge of a, of a pastor, is to teach the word in season and out of season. Maybe, maybe you can hear it like this, is to teach the word when it's popular and it's not popular. To teach the word when we like it and when we don't like it. And my job as a pastor is to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Why? Verse 3, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what it is that they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing. Come on, someone shout truth. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Today, as we begin our series, Tethered, I want to speak to you from this subject today. If you're writing notes, write this in your notes section or on your notebook. The title of my message today is Orthodoxy, Old Truths for a New World, as we deal with the importance of doctrine, theology, and the timeless truths of our Christian faith. Will you pray with me just one more time today? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, and has the ability to transform us from the inside out. God's Speak to us right now in your name. Your word has and holds everything that we need for life and faith and godliness. And so God, right now, I pray that in the communication of your word that 
you would illuminate our minds and our hearts that we'd be able to hear your voice. No one needs to hear Jason Parrish's voice. God, move me out of the way today. Would you speak so specifically to our hearts and our minds? God, would your word, as it is living and active, cut literally to the, the core of who we are and that we would leave here today transformed and changed. We love you. We worship you. We give you this space. Speak to us right now in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and the church shouted, Amen. Show of hands, how many of you have bought a new car before? Come on, show of hands. All right, lots of us in here. Auditorium too, come on. Don't, uh, just because you can't see me live, I want you to engage with us today. Uh, how many of you, show of hands one more time, have bought a car before? New car, used car, okay, whatever. Lots of us have done it. Um, I don't like buying cars, okay? I don't think any of us like enjoy, like we didn't wake up today and go, oh, yay, let's go buy a car, right? Um, I remember when Erica was pregnant with my, my first, Justice, it was honestly a couple nights before we were about to give birth to him. And so we decided after trying to stick the car seat for this newborn who was coming in the back of our Toyota Zion. How many of you have seen those micro machines before? The Toyota Zion, right? It's about this big, probably four men in here could lift it up and put it on stage. That's like, it has gerbils underneath the hood. They just run and the car moves. It's fantastic. It's the smallest car on the planet. And so we tried to go stick the car seat in the back of the car, getting ready for our newborn, and the car seat wouldn't fit in the back seat of the car. So we were like, we need a new car or we're not gonna be able to bring this baby home with us. And so we decided, in, in honestly, what was really late at night to go to the dealership to trade in this vehicle and buy a new vehicle because we thought to ourselves, this will be really fast and really easy. How many of you know we were wrong? Because I think we all understand this truth. Buying a vehicle is not fast and it is not easy. How many of you know that the vehicle never costs as much as it says it's going to cost in the sticker in the window, right? So you go in, you see this car, you go, oh, it's gonna cost this much. That's in the budget, that's great, gets good gas mileage. And then you get to the person who's taking care of you. And after 75 hours later, your car costs $900 more than it originally costs, okay? And you walk out and you wonder to yourself, what kind of life decision did I make today? And that's where we were at. After a lot of, oh, well, uh, we forgot to tell you, or there's, there's this fee, and then we have a processing fee. And I was like, it takes $300 to process paper? Is that, that's, that's what it takes? And by the time you get done, everything has exploded and you're looking at a very different situation than what you originally thought you were gonna have walking out of there. Is that anybody else's experience or is that just me? And I have found myself numerous amounts of times saying to myself, I wish they would have just been honest and upfront from the beginning. See, many of us have been disillusioned not because of the actual details and the truth that we received, but because of the timing or the detail, or the timing of the details of that truth. Pilate asks, what is truth? Paul tells Timothy that people will turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, verses six through seven, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Here's the truth I want you to hear today. Truth matters. Four of you, let's try this again, maybe over here. Truth matters. Come on, center section, truth matters. Yes. Come on, right over here, truth matters. Yes. Come on, the whole church, auditorium too, truth matters. Yes. And still some of us will hesitate because we're like, I don't know. I don't know if there is a truth. I don't know if I believe in this truth because I have my own truth. Maybe your experience defines truth for you. Maybe your education defines truth. Maybe your background, maybe you, you can fill in the blank. But truth is a tricky reality for us. But here's the truth, truth matters. Augustine put it this way, error in the soul is hideous and repulsive, but where I found truth, there I found my God, who is the truth itself. Orthodoxy, every shout orthodoxy. Theologian Kevin J. Van Hooser would say it is the result of centuries of Christian thinking 
about the implications of the good news that God has sent and raised his son for us and our salvation, making all things new. He goes on to say, disciples need the guidance orthodoxy provides in order to walk the way of Jesus Christ. Come on, and if any of these things shout out to your soul, feel free to say amen today, okay? Trevin Wax in his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, some of you need to snap a picture of this because this will be the working definition, write it down in your journal, this will be the working definition for orthodoxy all throughout this series because I really like it. He says the term orthodoxy refers to the foundational truths consistent with the scriptures upon which Christians through the ages have demonstrated agreement. Orthodoxy is the historic Christian consensus on the essential elements of true faith and practice what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. I like this definition, so we're gonna use it as the working definition and term for orthodoxy today and for this series. Throughout this series, you and I will be introduced to some of our faith's most beautiful and robust truths known as Christian doctrine. Doctrine, according to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, is this. The body of teachings of the Christian faith concerning its central beliefs, Doctrine is grounded in scripture and aims to maintain the integrity of Christianity by distinguishing it from non-Christian beliefs. Doctrine is of central importance in Christian preaching and teaching in that it equips the people of God for effective and faithful service in the world. We'll talk about why in a few minutes when we get practical with this message today. That's what I want us to hear. These are not new truths but rather old truths that have collected the dust of centuries gone by and still stand as colossal giants in the ever-violent field of truth-seeking. Once again, Trevin Wax writes this, the church faces, listen to this statement, the church faces her biggest challenge not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. And some of us today, and I know this is a mixed group of people today in church. For some of you, you've been a Christ follower for a really long time. You're in church today. This is part of your, this is, this is a part of you walking out your faith in Jesus. And you're figuring things out. Come on, because there's no one perfect in this journey. But there's other of us in here today who are kicking the tires on faith. Maybe somebody invited you to church. They told you to take you to Denny's afterwards. And so you're like, sweet, let's go, right? And and you're trying to figure things out. And this series is going to be a series where we're going to work really hard to to bring consistency and clarity around the things that we believe as Christ followers. Y'all with me? Now, a lot of church people, can I say church people? Is that all right? A lot of church people are afraid that new ideas are overriding the old truths of scripture. And I would actually say, I'm not nervous about that and afraid of that because no new idea overrides the truth of God's infallible word. We'll talk about that. Can I get an amen on that one today, right? (laughs) Right, we'll talk about that because next week we're gonna press into what the Bible is and why we believe the Bible and, and we're gonna make our statement of faith in the Bible. I'm actually not afraid of new ideas. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that the old ideas, the old truths of our faith are actually something that no longer wow us anymore. I'm afraid that Easter's become an event instead of the foundation of our faith. That we can kind of just pass by and and observe the Easter Sunday moment that Jesus, King Jesus was buried three days, got up out of the grave, conquered sin, conquered hell, conquered death, and resurrected. He ascended into heaven. I'm afraid that truth has become normal. And when old truths become normal, the church dies. When old truths become normal, our faith wanes. I'm I'm concerned that the old truth that I have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus is becoming so abstract and nonchalant to us that all of a sudden we just participate in an event every day. Coming to church is just part of the schedule versus coming to meet with the bride of Christ, the people of God. Is anybody with me in church today? We've got to go back to the old truths. Now, I know when we say, oh, we've got to go back to the old truths, we can go, oh, isn't that prudish? Christianity needs to advance. It's time that Christianity 
grows up. We're hearing that in culture right now. It's time that Christianity gets a new pair of jeans. It's time that Christianity gets with the times. But here's the problem. No matter how much our culture progresses, the old truths stand as the foundation. Now, I know that's going to ruffle some feathers in here, and I want to say this out the gate. My job as your pastor is not to say the things that you want to hear during this series. It's to say the things that I'm required by God to say as your pastor. Now, my concern is not to have you like me, okay? But my, my concern is to feed you meat and potatoes. This is not a candy and cake series. Come on. Right, this is not a donut series. This is not a Skittle series. This is, this is broccoli, okay? This is artichokes, right? This is Brussels sprouts. We'll throw some bacon in it, but it'll still be like, it's... Because come on, bacon's... <laughs> that's the good stuff. But we've got to be clear. For centuries, the church has agreed upon certain core truths or teachings consistent with Scripture essential for faith and practice and necessary, here it is, for human flourishing. Personally, corporately, culturally. And this is what we call orthodoxy. On the other hand, heresy, how many of you have heard that before? Heard this word before? Heresy is the opposite of orthodoxy. It is the twisting, the manipulation, and the departure from what has been agreed upon historically as the church has given herself to it in faith and practice. Having sacred scripture as our guide, the people of God have a living word that Paul the Apostle would tell us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may complete and be equipped for every good work. This word, the Bible, gives us the roadmap for our faith, especially where matters of doctrine are concerned. I believe that the journey we will take through this series, Tethered, will be one of the most significant and enriching experiences our church has ever embarked upon. Our faith, our knowledge, and understanding will be challenged and built up. Where we lack confidence in our relationship with God, church, hear me, I believe we will be strengthened and fortified. Okay? I also want to say this at the outset. Everybody look at me when I say this. Everybody auditorium too. I want you to hear this loud and clear. All of these issues that are contained in this book and the things that I'm going to poke at during this series, they are not political issues. Five of you agreed with me. Okay. They are not political issues. They've been issues. They're issues since the beginning of time. They are issues that have been politicized, but they are not political issues. Okay. Can we get an amen in church today? And this is important because what happens is so many times we can lean back and go, well, there's pastors getting involved in politics. Nope, I'm getting involved in scripture. Okay? So when we talk about some of the things that we're going to talk about in this series, I'm not getting involved with some of those things, although it's not bad too. I'm just simply saying it so that we can drop down some of the walls that some of us put up and so we can focus on what the Bible says. You have to deal with it. You got to wrestle with it. Okay? Now, before we jump into the practical, well, here's why. Let me say this. Ephesians 4, 14 through to 15. Let the Bible say this. Why do we need to do a series like this? Paul writes, then we will no longer be little children. Little children. We'll no longer be little children. Okay? Everybody shout, grow up. Every turn your neighbor and say, grow up. Every turn your neighbor and say, don't you talk to me that way. We will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the, everybody shout truth. truth. In love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Man, isn't scripture beautiful? Now, before we jump into the practical realities of all of this, I want to clarify what this series is and is not. This series is not an apologetics series designed to convince you of something that you do not believe or are struggling to believe. In other words, I'm not going to offer you scientific reasoning and fact as to why we believe Jesus got out of the grave. Okay? 
We're, we're not gonna do that. I know some of us want that. And uh, that an apologetic series is something very, very different. We're, we're not gonna do that. I know that science disagrees with the idea that Jesus got out of the grave. But as a Christ follower, I believe that my sins are forgiven because of what took place on the cross, that he was buried and he got up again. And that is how death, hell, and the grave is defeated. And that is why I have eternity. It is not a scientific fact. It is a faith confession. Y'all with me? Okay. Although we will say things and work through thoughts and info in such a way that will be apologetics-ish, this series is a series of clarity meant to articulate the sacred truths of our faith that we as a pastoral team and elders, staff, and church hold as foundational and unchanging. In agreement with Jesus, his word, the apostles of old, and centuries of faithful and humble men and women who have studied, labored, and have held fast to God, his law, statutes, design, and word. We are going to say it as loud as we can. These are the statements of our faith. Okay. This series is designed to bring clarity and consistency to our church. This series is designed to bring the confessions of our faith to the forefront of this faith community so we know how to continue to stand in faith as a church. And this is not a new idea. This is not brave new territory. Okay? I've heard, I've heard a lot of people say to me as we've been prepping for this, like, man... Like, this is, this is new terror. This is brave. And I'm like, this is not brave. We have centuries of people who have stood in places and spaces and declared these truths. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants right now. People who have labored and fought to make sure that these truths keep us anchored, tethered, weighed down when the world is going nuts. Now, I pray that I'm spirit-led and spirit-filled in this. But we've got this. And so I get, to, I get to stand behind this and allow God's word to speak. Come on, somebody. Now, why? Once again, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy, he says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And, and most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now notice that Paul calls the church the pillar and foundation of the truth. Y'all see that? And I know for some of us, we struggle with that because we have issues with church. Come on, right? Some of you are like, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> we have issues with church. We come from different backgrounds. I read a book, I started reading this book yesterday and the book said something really profound about this next generation that's coming up and, I, and, and I'm gonna believe it and we're gonna work into it. But they said that studies have shown that the reason that the next generation is rejecting church and rejecting faith is not actually because of the truths that are being talked about in church and through faith. They're rejecting it because the churches they have been a part of seem to not believe in the truth that they're preaching. Right. I want my kids to see that I don't just preach it, but I live it. Right? How many of you have heard this before? Practice what you preach. That's nonsense. Nonsense. We should preach what we practice. You see the difference? One's act, you are actively engaged. I don't want to preach something I'm not practicing. And so for our next generation, we got a whole student section sitting over here. I want them to see that we practice what we preach. That at the end of the day, they can say, this is my house, this is my church. Come on, families, I need you to understand. We are fighting for the next generation but I don't believe that the next generation is so far gone. I think they're actually leaned in right now. I think they believe in the supernatural. I think they have eyes to see what it is that God can do. And it's our responsibility to declare the foundational truths of our faith to them. Why do we believe what we believe? 
Because if we're not careful, we are a church that shows up for nice music and a TED talk rather than a church that shows up to be engaged with the living and active word of God, to consecrate ourselves and to worship with abandon the God who has saved us. Yes. Now listen to this, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. I got to hustle. Holy smokes. <laughs> so what happens when I'm gone on vacation? I have a high word count. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciousness are seared. The battle that we face is not flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that we are fighting a different type of fight. And once we can get to that place and understand that, then we can lean in in such a way that's appropriate as a church. Now, verse six, Paul tells Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed, okay? But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths, rather train yourself in godliness. Here's the thing that I want us to hear today. Jason Parrish, this staff, is not an existential crisis as to what we believe. Four of you said amen. Let's try this again. There is a fly up here, and that is a demon in and of itself. My goodness. Somebody like, why is he so twitchy? I want us to know that because there's actually a really big conversation right now that's happening, and what is it that churches need to do in order to gain trust in their community? And I want you to know that this pastoral team is anchored in these truths. I'm not wrestling through them. I'm not questioning what we believe on these things. I have conviction. And I want you to have conviction. Because here's why. If you don't have conviction, you will be convinced of something else that sounds smarter. So we're not debating about these things. We're simply laying them out. Why? because I want you to know what you believe and you've got to wrestle it out. Is that all right with everybody? All right, so with all that being said, let's get practical. Now that's the heady part of it. Let's get practical. Why is orthodoxy in our doctrine and faith statements? Why are all the things that are, that are located in this journal, why are they so important for us? I want to answer that question by looking at three essential truths that we must understand. And each of these truths, like they have interplay. They significantly interact with each other. Need your help today? Come on, every shot number one. Every shot number one. Here's the first thing. What you believe defines the way you behave. What you believe defines the way that you behave. What you believe, come on, Santi, defines the way that you behave. Right? What you believe, right, Danny, defines the way that you behave. What you believe Come on. Amen. Defines the way that you behave. How many would agree with me today that it is hot outside right now? Okay? Four of you believe that. Let's try. <laughs> Get back to this. How many of you believe that it is hot outside today? Okay, this is not a trick question. Everyone's hands should go up. This is a scientific fact, okay? How many of you believe, come on, auditorium two, online. How many of you believe it is hot outside today? Right? Okay. And because it's hot outside today, how many of you would agree with me that you will engage in certain behaviors because you believe that it's hot outside? You'll put shorts on. You'll get cold water. I had an iced coffee this morning at 6.30 in the morning. It was beautiful. Why? Because I'm not drinking hot coffee right now. I need my innards to stay cool as my outards are on fire right now. When we believe something, we engage in behaviors that are congruent with it. What you believe about God defines the way that you behave and work this thing out called faith. Now, what's really interesting is that behave in church culture has become a bad word. 
Nobody likes the word behave because we say, well, there it is, finally. I've been going to this church for a while. I knew the other shoe would drop. I knew they were gonna get legalistic on me. I knew there was something that was gonna come out about my, I knew, I knew, I knew he was gonna say something about making me do good things. <laughs> Nonsense. I wanna be very clear when I say this. You do not behave your way into salvation. You do not behave your way into God's grace. You do not behave your way into eternity. You do not behave your way into, into the love of Jesus. You can't buy it. You can't produce it. You can't pick it up in bulk at Costco. You can't walk anybody. Like, it doesn't matter who you walk across the street. It doesn't matter how many worship services you go to. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter on any of those things. You are not saved by works. Come on, can I get an amen? Are, are we clear? I wanna be so clear, emphatically clear. You are not, because I don't want you to walk out and be like, I heard what the preacher said today. He said it, I'm saved by doing something. No, you are not. Christ already did it. your salvation will do something to you. It's this little thing called change. And in the book, if you were to flip around, you'll see this word, sanctification and repentance. We're gonna talk about that in the series. So while I don't earn anything, his love changes me. And if I believe in what Christ has done for me, my behavior changes. James chapter two, verses 18 to 26, he'd say this, but some, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you your faith by my works. You believe that God is one. God! Even the demons believe that. These are big scriptures. He's saying, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you believe it. Even demons believe it. And that's why they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to, to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son to the altar? You see that faith was acted together with his works. And by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was filled. This is Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Okay? You can have faith, but is your faith working through you? We all believe something. And that something in which we believe is proven by how we behave. Behavior is the product of belief or faith. So here's the thing that I want us to hear today when I say this. My goal as a pastor is not to get you to behave. Come on, everybody lean in. There should be a lot of amens on that. You're like, yes, that's sweet. My goal is not to get you to behave. My goal is to get you to believe. Because I believe that if you believe, your behavior will change. Behavior changes from the heart first. See, this is what's going on with a lot of people right now. You're wondering, man, why, can't, why do I keep on getting tripped up in all of these things? And I would submit to you that potentially you were taught. <laughs> Guys, this fly is gonna drive me bananas. My... <laughs> Holy smokes. You were potentially taught to behave before you believe. Now, nobody actually said that, but you gathered that. Like, I've got I've to put myself together in order to go to church, in order to be a Christian, to do all these things. And so when I talk to people whose behaviors are not congruent, and I see them slipping up in things, we have to ask this question first. What do you believe about God? Because what you believe defines the way that you behave. 
Are you all tracking with me? Yeah. So this is really, really important. Again, we're starting at a 30,000 foot view. I'm talking different than I normally do because this is kind of a, it's a different series. It's more academic. We want to wrestle through some of these, these things. Listen to what uh, Augustine said. He said, we sin from two causes, either not seeing what we ought to do or not doing what we see ought to be done. Of those two, the former is due to ignorance, the latter to weakness. What is he saying? He's saying that belief informs action. And in the case of our Christian faith, an action that is incongruent with what we believe about God and what he has called us to be and to do is sin. One author said it like this, orthodoxy and doctrine help us close the gap between our confessional theology and our functional theology. In other words, it helps us close the gap into what I say I believe and then doing the things that I say I believe. Y'all with me? And this is important. This is the work that we have to do as a church right now. So my goal is not to get you to believe necessarily. My goal is to hopefully say the things that need to be said so that we believe. If I believe that I've been saved by grace, oh baby, you gotta better understand that I'm gonna start letting that thing work itself out in me. If I believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within me when I say yes to Jesus, oh, you better believe that I want some spiritual fruit popping off in my life. Why? Because I believe something. If I believe in the power of prayer when my daughter falls ill, you better believe I'm going to lay my hands on her and I'm going to pray over her. Come on, you better believe that if I believe that I can trample demons and reject the enemy and he will flee from me, I will stand strong. Come on, am I, what do you believe? But if I believe that the devil has more authority than God, of course I'll be scared. If I believe that I'm just a product of my situation, of course I will always live in lack. If I believe that God is against me rather than for me, of course I'll never step out in confidence. What do you believe? If I believe that the cross is an idea, then of course I'll just struggle with the same sin for the rest of my life. Oh, it's getting quiet in church today. What do you believe? Because what you believe informs the way that you behave. Number two, we'll dig into this more throughout the, the entirety of the series. Number two, every shout number two. What you behold sets the path for who you become. This is about identity. What you behold sets the path for who you become. Second Corinthians 3, 17 through to 18. Lots of scripture. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, are looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed. Everybody shout transform. transform. Come on, shout transform. transform. Come on, everybody shout transformers. Transform. Come on. Great people in disguise. <laughs> into the... <laughs> um, into the same image from glory to glory... Who's it from? What's the Bible say? It's from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul's submission to us is that transformation takes place by the authority given over to that which we behold. When you behold something, when you gaze upon it, you're giving it authority. When we behold God, we're transformed by his glory for his glory. But when our gaze is set and fixated upon something else or someone else, we are transformed by that which we are fixated upon. See, when we study doctrine and theology, we're beholding. The study of God and the deepening of our knowledge of God defines our identity and continues to redefine our identity. And this is a massive issue for us today. In a study done by the National Institutes of Health, they concluded that roughly, and this, this study that they did represented America, the United States, that roughly 49%, just short of half of their participants, found themselves conflicted in the areas of life that define or make up what they deem as identity. According to the National Institute of Health, this is their definition for identity, listen. Identity can be conceptualized broadly as the sense of self, the roles, traits, goals, values, beliefs, and experiences that add up to create an individual's unique place in the world. 
Another study done by the Department of Psychology at Harvard suggests that over the past few centuries, specifically the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, due to the radical degrees of social, technological, and institutional change, people as a whole have lost significant degrees of stability in their overall assessment of personal identity. In other words, this question, who am I? We are struggling to answer it. It's frightening people. And I would actually argue never before in a generation have we had to wake up asking the same questions that many of our students are asking today. Now again, I want you to hear, my heart is not to offend, but statements can be offensive. And we are not asking the same questions that our kiddos are asking about themselves today. Who am I? Am I a boy or am I a girl? Am I worth something or am I not worth something? Am I loved or am I not loved? Do I have a future or do I not have a future? Come on. Is there a purpose to my life or is there not a purpose to my life? And these are the things that we are facing today. I heard, I heard a speaker this week at a conference that we were, that we were at who was old enough to say this, just as I'm old enough to say this, we used to have to walk into a 7-Eleven or an AM-PM to pick up pornography. Oh, don't get uncomfortable in church. You, we're just getting started in this series, guys. <laughs> I ain't scared of you. Right? And the speaker said, we used to have to pick it up and memorize it. And now... You can ask Siri for it. What you gaze upon, you become. And here's the thing that we must realize. When you are lacking personal identity, you will go to anything that will give it to you. Our responsibility as the church my responsibility as a pastor who teaches the word is to make sure that we give a clear and compelling picture of the identity that we living now in this next generation to come has in Christ Jesus. Come on. Oh, I hope we have more people than that clapping to that one. Come on, auditorium. Our job for the next generation, come on, is to give them a compelling vision of who Christ has designed them to be. It's our job. Listen to Psalm 119, 24 through to 32. The psalmist says, your decrees are my delight and my counselors. Woo. Your decrees, God, are my delight and they are my counselors. My life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. I told you about my life and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. I'm weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. Keep me from the way of deceit and graciously give me your instruction. I have chosen the way of truth. Can I say to us today that truth is a choice? That's what the psalmist is saying. I've chosen, I I have chosen the way of truth. I have set your ordinances before me. I cling to your decrees. Lord, do not put me to shame. I pursue the way of your commands for you broaden my understanding. And this is why a series like this is so important to bring clarity of what we believe from historic Christian perspective. Once again, to anchor us in the next generation in the timeless truths concerning first who God is and subsequently who we are. Number three, every shot number three. Last one is this. Y'all right still? Okay. Number three. What you blueprint establishes what you build. What you blueprint establishes what you build. This is about personal and corporate fidelity. And here's what I mean by this. 
the thing that we hold cling to, fidelity, to stay in connection to it, to stay in allegiance to it. Does that make sense? So corporate and personal fidelity, because what you blueprint, you will build. Come on, how many of you agree with me that a set of blueprints defines what's built? This church is getting ready to close on August 21st on the theater that's right over here. Okay? And that's insane. And one of the things that we're doing right now is we're in the process of designing it, working it out, so that the people who are going to build it, what are they going to put together? Blueprints. I was talking with Pastor Seth the other day. He was working through all this with me because he's doing a lot of work on this with the construction guys. And they'll create this booklet of pages that they can flip through. And every little thing, mechanical, all the air conditioning, the heat, power, cement, structure, nails, bolts, metal, walls. It's all going to be in there. It's the blueprints. And then after they're done with the project, they're going to hand it to us. Because that that they give us is the definition of what been, has been built. <laughs> Listen, y'all. If you think that there is not a blueprint for your life, I got to tell you, you're gravely mistaken. The one who made you, he wrote it all out for you. And he says, sorry, child. I know you're living in a broken world right now. But I've got some things in this blueprint that if you would just adhere to them, I know it's hard. But I know who you are. I know what your heart needs. I know what your head needs. I know what your body needs. I know all those things. Why? Because he made you. And some of us are trying to go places for a blueprint they can't give us. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 10 says this, according to God's grace that was given to me. This is Paul. I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. Generations have been building upon it. But listen, each one is to be careful how he builds on it. Every shout careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than that what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, the fire will test the quality of each one's work. And if anyone's work that has built survives, he will receive a reward. <laughs> Have you ever asked someone or someplace, something, to provide you something that they're not able to provide? <laughs> Have you ever walked into McDonald's and asked for a steak and potatoes? Try it sometime. How many of you would agree with me that if you walked into McDonald's right after today, right? You'd be like, I mean, all these people from the well are coming and asking for steak and potatoes. This is weird. What's going on? Come on. How many of you would agree with me right now? If you walked into McDonald's and asked for steak and potatoes, how many of you know they'd be like, we don't have that here? Right? And if you kept on pressing, they'd be like, we don't have that here. Do you not understand? We don't, we don't do that. Now they may try to say, well, hey, a quarter pounder with cheese and some fries is kind of like steak and potatoes. And how many of you'd be like, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus? Because it ain't. McDonald's has quarter pounders with cheese and fries. Ruth's Chris, they got steak. They got potatoes. And here's the funny thing is that right now we are living in a generation, especially that is coming to God's word and his church, asking us to give things and approve things and say things that are incongruent with what we believe and what we know God has said. We are not offering cheeseburgers and fries. We are offering steak and potatoes. 
so that our lives can be lined up with what his word says. See, the things that we're asking will be examined in this series. And as we will all see, our orthodoxy in these issues matters. Here's the problem. We want a Christian faith without sin and repentance. We want a Christian faith without hell. We want a Christian faith without a design for family, gender, and sexuality. We want the Christian faith with no boundaries and designed for personal and corporate flourishing. Maybe here's a better way to say it. We want a kingdom without a king. The great theologian R.C. Sproul said it like this, natural man's sin is precisely this. He wants the benefits of God without God himself. The kingdom first and foremost offers us a king and his name is Jesus. Come on. I said the kingdom itself first and foremost offers us a king. Come on somebody and his name is Jesus. Oh, I don't know if you got it yet. We have a king and his name, oh, come on somebody, is Jesus. And that king, hear me, that king offers us a way. He offers us a truth and he offers us a life and it's only through him. This is orthodoxy. And this is what it means to be tethered to the truths that anchor us in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and the church shouted, amen. Ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes in this moment. Jesus, help us. Nothing fancy today. But here's my question to you. Is Jesus your truth? And have you said yes to him? And I know there may be some of us in this room today that have yet to say yes to the truth that Jesus, fully God, fully man, came, lived, died, was buried, rose again from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father for the freedom of our lives, for the forgiveness of sins. Through grace, we have salvation and eternity with him. These are the truths that anchor us. And maybe today you'd be saying, man, Jason, I have never said yes to that gift. I wanna reframe something today. This is not about asking Jesus into your heart. This is about acknowledging that you need the gift of salvation through him. He's already paid for it. The question is, is are you rejecting it or accepting it? And when you accept it, it changes who you are. And there might be some of us today that say, I need to accept and acknowledge my need for Jesus. And if that's you today, we're gonna pray a prayer together, all of us together so we don't leave anybody out. So come on, as loud as you possibly can today, would everybody in this room today in auditorium too, repeat these words after me. Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, and make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for saving me through grace, not my own works. And it's because of my faith in you that I have salvation. In Jesus' mighty name.